Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger, and from Motley Fool Deep Value, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. how you doing? We've got the latest from big banks, big retail, and more. We will head to Detroit for a report from the North American International Auto Show. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the market writ large because the U.S. stock market has officially entered correction territory, Ron. All three major indices have now fallen more than 10% off their recent highs. And I know it's not a great start to 2016, <laughs> but if you're just looking at the headlines, there is a lot of fear-mongering going on it, out it there. It can create a lot of anxiety. The, the last time I checked the numbers, the S&P was back to mid-2014 levels, the Russell 2000 mid-2013 levels. So we have a real pullback here. This is not one of those, you know, a couple points here, a couple points there. This is real, and it's perfectly um, reasonable for investors to feel anxiety and, and to feel worried about this. So what do we do? That that's the real question. And and we could analyze the details here ad nauseum, like some of those other business shows do. And you know, you can start with economic growth and move to unemployment and interest rates and the strength of the dollar and inflation and move to China and move to North Korea and move to the Middle East. And what about oil? And what about the geopolitical? And what about the politics here at home? I, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Ron, you I just think, took everything. I, I think there, I think know? the right thing to do because it's actually not even possible to do all that. The right thing to do is what we always say: is to put capital into solid companies that you believe in over a lifetime of investing. And if you do that, data has proven that you're going to be okay. Um, I personally was gun shy earlier this week. I started to think about buying. I started and I put the brakes on. I said, "Let me just think a little bit." But that's where I've come out now. Um, Perfect time to start to put money back into the markets. Uh, you don't have to do it all at once, but you can start to bleed money in. Well, and to pivot off the emotional part of that, Maddie, literally a headline this week I saw was sell everything. Again, that kind of thing not really helping. <laughs> well, then there's there's another headline this morning that says, you know, this is in 2008. It's actually worse. I mean, we we have to really you know pump the brakes here on a lot of things. I mean, a 10 percent correction, uh, we're probably a little below that now, but that that's almost happens pretty much on average every year. Uh, in fact, we so we've had kind of two 10 percent corrections in the last six months, but we went about three years without really having any kind of correction. I mean, the market was just straight up for for three years or so since 2011. Uh, so it's not surprising. I agree with Ron completely. I mean, I you, as as fools as investors, we really kind of we're tempted to rush in here, look at a lot of our favorite ideas down 15-20% and say, "Oh, it's time to buy. Let's, let's the bargains are out there, right?" Well, there are some big there are some issues out there in the economy, uh, in the markets, and I would say we're going to get a lot of information come earnings season, which is we're right we're starting right now and over the next few weeks. Uh, I think a lot of companies are kind of going to throw in the kitchen sink with their results and probably set the bar pretty low for 2016. And I think so, yeah, if you have some companies on your radar that you're watching that you believe in, show a little patience, maybe buy a little now, wait for more information. And Jason, as Maddie said, some of these stocks are starting to look like bargains, but some of them are down for a really good reason. Sure, yeah, plenty of them are down for very good reasons. And I think it's it's easy to kind of go into a market like this and say, Oh, everything is just getting peppered. It's it's a great buying opportunity, and I, and I, I like that Ron sort of referred back to his you know take put his foot on the brakes there for a second, 
take take a look back and sort of think for a minute. Well, maybe things could get a little bit worse. Let's let's exhibit some patience here and sort of uh, understand a little bit better what's going on. Because I mean, you, you feel like well, we've been talking for the past year about well, we we want to see unemployment get better. We want to see the consumer become more confident. Well, in theory, we should be there, right? I mean, unemployment is better. Uh, the consumer should be more confident now that unemployment is better and energy prices are low. The consumer should be stronger right now, but the consumer is not. I think we have a tenant of consumer out there that uh, even you even see it in, in homeowners equity today. I mean, home, homeowners equity today it's it's four point two trillion dollars available, up six hundred billion dollars over the last year. But consumers aren't out there tapping that in uh, that equity, spending it on things like vacations and new cars. They're spending it maybe. On on property uh, upgrades to their homes, they're being a bit more cautious in this in this environment, and uh, it's it's worth noting that the stock market had gotten a little bit ahead of itself. Historically speaking, the multiple was a bit higher, so this is I think a reasonable pullback. But I think it's also reasonable to exercise a little patience and and just hang in there. And we we always say you should not have money in the stock market that you need over the next let's say one to three years, and this is exactly the reason. If if you need the money six months from now for whatever a, a wedding or a home home purchase, you could be in dire straits at the moment if the market doesn't rebound quickly. So if you've heeded that advice, my recommendation is don't look at the value of your portfolio uh, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, maybe not even at all. Take a look at your cash balance or the money that you can put into as cash and think about building for the future and ignore the value of your portfolio. Yeah, I think Ron's spot on there. And I mean, you could even go out as far as five years and say, put money in the market that you know you're not going to need for the next five years, depending on your age, right? If you're 40, 45 years old, maybe look at that five year sort of of, uh, benchmark there. If you're a little bit older, you're a little bit more in that stage of protecting your wealth, then that timeline, it it, it decreases, right? Then it gets to be a little bit smaller, three, one year maybe. Uh, but, But definitely that, you go in with sort of those expectations set already, and and then it becomes a little bit easier to control your emotions in times like these. Let's get to some of the company earnings this week. Intel's fourth quarter profits and revenue both came in higher than expected. Wall Street not impressed, though. Shares of the chipmaker falling more than 9% on Friday. What gives, Matty? Well, it really comes down, I think, to their data center business. This is the this is kind of the growth engine for the company for Intel nowadays. I mean, we know what's happening to the PC market. It's 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 kind of in a secular decline. So they really have invested a lot in this data center business. And it, it had a decent year in 2015, up 11% but below what Intel's been targeting. Intel's been looking at 15% annual growth in this business, at least projecting that. It dropped to 11% in 2015 and dropped to 5% in Q4. And the CEO made some kind of cautious comments about that uh, going forward in 2016. They also saw, as we've heard from almost every company, that there's a bit of a slowdown going on in China. Didn't know that was going on. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of affecting their PC market. I didn't really realize that China is now Intel's largest PC market. And so a weakness there is really going to hurt them. Uh, you know, we recently sold Intel. Jason knows this in Million Dollar Portfolio. I think it was the right move. I, it's not quite that tech bellwether it used to be, and I, I, you know, it's it's very large and it's still very dependent on the PC market. Fourth quarter results for Wells Fargo were mixed. Profits a little bit higher than expected, but overall revenue coming in a little bit light. Jason, yeah, I mean, we know that Wells Fargo is the leading uh, the leading bank, uh, domestic bank here in regard to mortgages. Uh, it's the energy portfolio, interestingly enough, for not only Wells Fargo but really banks all over the country that are taking uh, hits because of all of these uh, falling energy prices. And you know, when these 
prices get lower and these banks have a lot of outstanding loans to all of these energy companies around the country, well, it just becomes a little bit more difficult to collect on those loans. Thankfully for Wells Fargo, it's it's so big it can't fail, right, Chris? <laughs> uh, no, I mean honestly, it is it is so big that that it's not something that is necessarily going to uh, you know keep them from from performing. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, the reserves to set, the, the reserves they set aside to cover potential loan losses almost doubled from a year ago, um, and and its net interest margin did fall a little bit. But again, I mean, this is a bank that is it's the leader in the mortgage market. They have a number of different ways they make their money. But I think this all does kind of get back to the question of I mean these big banks. I mean. Are they really too big to fail? Are they still so big that if we do run into another crisis, uh, it, it would uh, you know cause some type of domino effect throughout our entire economy? Given that we are a a credit based economy today, so uh, very well run bank. But again, I, I think you have to kind of look at this greater banking industry and wonder: has anything really changed? And I'm not so sure that it has. The holiday retail numbers are starting to come in, and so far it's not looking that great. Shares of Best Buy hitting a 52 week low this week after. Their same store sales fell just over one percent. Run, blaming it on mobile phones. The uh, same store sales in the computing and mobile phone business down six point seven percent during that all important holiday season. Uh, not great. A uh, couple areas of pos- positive news: online sales was up twelve thirteen percent. Consumer electronics up four percent. Appliances up thirteen percent. But that that computing and mobile business is such a big business for them that that it's hard to combat um, that, and it kind of really told the story here. So they're not planning to cut any more stores. They've done a pretty good job since 2013 when the new CEO came in. They've cut costs, they've revamped their inventory, they've reduced discounts a bit. Um, so they've done what they can do, I think. But this is just a tough business, and in the wake of, of folks like Amazon, it's really difficult to compete. You know, before the show, we we noticed that Walmart just announced they're closing 200. 169 of their stores, including all of their smaller express store concepts, and that's to focus on e-commerce because you know that's that's where the business is right now, and and that's a tough road. I w- uh, sorry, I was going to say I think that's a watershed moment for for Walmart. By the way, I I really they put a lot into that. I mean, they know the the urban market, and that's what they've been going after. And to sort of pivot away from that, and to really say they're going to focus on e-commerce, I. I don't know. I've said it before. I just think Walmart is is a slow moving train wreck, and it's it's just getting it's picking up momentum. Well, you look back to those retail numbers for the holiday season here. I mean, retail in general uh, came in at about three percent, well below the NRF's projections there. But e-commerce, on the flip side of that, was actually well above their expectations, around nine percent. So the mm-hmm. winners the winners are plain to see. Coming up, can great coaches make great CEOs? We will discuss that and more as we dip into the full mailbag. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Guys, another week, another new radio station starting Woo-hoo. with the Motley Fool Money hey. we go. affiliate family, KINX FM 102.7 in Great Falls, Montana. Ron, you want to hop on a plane, hit Montana? I'm there. Maybe Can we not, ride some horses? Uh, Good skiing. Uh, maybe not in January. Maybe, maybe we. This maybe <laughs> shows you what I know about horses. The, let's wait for the summer. <laughs> uh, few stocks having as bad a week as GoPro. Shares down nearly 30%. 
4% after the company lowered guidance and announced it is laying off 7% of the staff. Maddie, this is this is one of those stocks we talked about earlier. This is down for a reason. Oh yeah, I mean, where do we start here? I mean, you know, they've they're now targeting revenue of 435 million for the recent quarter. That's down from a range of 500 and to 550 million. So that's a big, big drop off. They're seeing a lot of weakness and sell through of the Hero Four cameras, which is the latest generation of their wearable cameras. Uh, to me, the big worry here is inventory. You know, if you go back to the end of September, going into the holiday quarter, they had almost 300 million. In inventory up 147% from the prior year. So obviously, GoPro put a lot into this final quarter. They did take a small charge for obsolete inventory, or they're, they're intending to now in the, in the past quarter. I just think that's going to pick up. I think they've got way too much uh, inventory. They're probably going to have to take charges against that. So expect a lot more earnings down drafts for, uh, for GoPro going forward. It, it doesn't it doesn't look pretty. I, I still I'm not in the camp that says GoPro's a fad, which a lot of people you know people in the market have kind of concluded about the company. I still think there's a lot going for it. I like the partnership with YouTube. I like Nick Woodman a lot. I do think there's a lot of value to the brand, uh, but it, it might take a while to turn it around. How much pressure do you think management feels right now about the uh, transition towards uh, becoming a media company? <sighs> I think from a financial media perspective, there's a lot of pressure. I don't think Nick Woodman's going to change anything about how he's managing the company, though. Radio at fool.com is our email address, radio at fool.com. From Courtney Whitmer in Leesburg, Virginia. My husband and I are huge fans of Shophouse with the recent brand damage that Chipotle has suffered. Do you think this might spur them to try and develop their other brands as a means of driving growth? Jason, obviously, Chipotle owns Shophouse, the Asian concept, Pizzeria Locale. I don't know. It's, it might be time to start ramping up plans for those two. It could be. I mean, we know that call in, call out. Every quarter, management continues to stay on message that the the namesake Chipotle stores are going to be the main source uh, source of growth here for the coming years. And and honestly, I mean, I feel like if this is one management team that was really feeling the pressure uh, to perform in the short run, then they might try to pull that lever. Uh, but but this is this is a different management team I think we have here. And, and Steve Ells, I think, listening to the conference the other day, they really got a lot of expectations out there, uh, eliminated a little bit of uncertainty, explained how they're going to sort of make things better. And the focus really is primarily to bring customers back into Chipotle and regain their customers' trust. So, uh, you know, most people don't even realize that Shop House or even Pizzeria Local are affiliated with Chipotle at all. I think that's probably a positive in the sense that it's created sort it of a is separate now. identity. <laughs> so they will pursue those growth avenues in time as as warranted. But for now, the me- the message is clear uh, that they will be focusing primarily on the Chipotle namesake stores. From Matt Spordone in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a stock advisor member, but I have a question regarding how I'm investing. I invest 8% of my pay into my employer's 401k plan, and they match up to 6%, which is great. I've also been buying shares of individual stocks every month, but only a share at a time. My plan is to diversify my portfolio with at least 15 stocks, and then beef up and buy some more shares for each of them as time goes on. Does this strategy make sense? More specifically, buying only one share at a time. Great question, Ron, yeah, really and and great about the four hundred one k plan. Yeah. So, Matt, in general, I think what you're doing is is, is fantastic, and you're going about it. Um, 
in, in a great way a couple of thoughts. So when you only buy one share of stock, you're, you're likely paying a very high commission rate as a percent of your purchase. For example, you buy one share of Starbucks at $57, you pay $9 in commission. That's a 16% fee, a 16% commission rate. So the stock has to go up 16% for you to just break even on that one share. That's a bit tough. I would prefer to see you maybe accumulate enough money where you can buy several shares of a company to try to get that commission rate down. In fact, we even say try to keep it under 2%. So the other thing is I'd like to see you have a measure of diversification, either through an S&P 500 index fund or an ETF. Perhaps you do have that through your 401k that you mentioned. If so, that's great. Um, I think you're doing a great job. Just give some thought to those commissions. Yeah, fees always matter. Always. Before we get to our final email, uh, Maddie, just want to mention Supernova. One of the services that you work on is open for a short amount of time to new members. This is one of our services that only is open to members a couple of times a year. For those who are interested, uh, what's the deal with Supernova? Sure, I love Supernova. I've been there since the the beginning. Uh, it is really if you're a, if you're a stock advisor or rule breakers or a David Gardner fan, I think you'll find a lot of value in Supernova, which is essentially taking portfolios, making portfolios out of those those great stock recommendations. I'll just throw out that you know with this Supernova Open in particular, we're launching a new mission. It's called Odyssey 2. Uh, it's a new portfolio. You're getting on the ground floor of that. And it's it's pivoting kind of or it's following in the footsteps of Odyssey 1, which is the portfolio that I'm on. Um, and if you're if I go back to 2012 when we launched Odyssey One came out of the gate in a market very much like this, very volatile, uh, things going in the red. Odyssey Two is seeing that same situation, but these days, you know, if you look at Odyssey One's performance, we've done great. It takes time, and I think you're with Supernova. You're getting on the ground floor of a great new portfolio. We've got a microsite for anyone interested, uh, looking for more information. A lot of great information, including some short videos featuring Matt Argusinger, uh, David Gardner, and others talking about investing, also individual stocks. You can find it. Just go to supernovaradio.fool.com. That's supernovaradio.fool.com. Final email and fresh off this week's national championship game in college football from John Hadley, who writes, I heard an ESPN analyst say that if he had a Fortune 500 company, he would hire Alabama coach Nick Saban to run it. It's obviously an off-the-cuff comment, but does it have any validity? Uh, I know that one of our executives here at The Motley Fool, Kara McDonough, big Alabama fan, she's not looking for Coach Saban to leave anytime soon, but uh, what do you think? Uh, John, I think that's a great question. I, I'm a big fan of systems, and I think Nick Saban's got one of the best football systems uh, in the country. So, you know, if you if you think about putting him in, in charge of a Fortune 500 company, he would hate dealing with investors and the media. He would hate it. I mean, he would he would loathe that. But I think if he came in, he would find great people. He'd set up a great system. Uh, I almost see him as more of a chairman of the board in a way, rather than just a day to day CEO guy. But either way, I, I love that. Yeah, just in line with the systems. And you know what they say: great leaders surround themselves uh, with with great and even better people. And I think that Saban is one of those guys who's proven it year in and year out. He just really attracts great people from his players to his coaching staff. And so, yeah, whether it's CEO or or, or chairman of the board, I think he I think he could do okay. Also, uh, I work for Belichick, by the way. I'm a huge Bill Belichick fan, as we all know. So, all right, just lost a couple of listeners. Oh, there, no. Maybe. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, we're heading to the Motor City for an in-depth look at the automotive industry. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The North American International Auto Show kicked off this week in Detroit 
with more than 850,000 people expected to attend. Here to help us sort through some of the headlines is Joe White, transportation editor for Thomson Reuters. He joins me now from Detroit. Joe, I know it's a busy week, so thanks for being here. Sure, anytime. Uh, what is your headline for the 2016 auto show? Well, you know, uh, here's here's what a lot of people said, and certainly what I what I felt, which is that uh, the the um, the real auto show this year was uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which was the week before the Detroit Auto Show press days. Um, the, a lot of several of the of the big automakers, Ford, uh, General Motors, uh, uh, Mercedes, uh, Daimler Benz. Um, uh, had had bigger announcements in uh, in Las Vegas, particularly as it relates to uh, their autonomous vehicle strategies and and uh, their their uh, technology uh, strategies. I, you know their ideas for uh, getting into car sharing, you know going after Uber and and going after Google. Uh, all of that was out at CES. So anyway, let's get back to Detroit because there were a few things here. Um, the uh, the new E Class uh, Mercedes E Class sedan was uh, was unveiled at least officially here in Detroit. Although there was a pretty big sneak peek in Vegas, uh, Chrysler uh, redesigned, renamed, relaunched its minivan, um, and they're hoping to uh, get the millennials who uh, grew up in the back seats of minivans. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago to uh, buy another one for their kids. Did they come up with a new word to replace the word minivan? No, but they did come up with a new name for their minivan, which was actually an old name that they're recycling. They called, they're calling it now the Pacifica, the Chrysler Pacifica. Uh, people with really good memories uh, might know that that was a name that uh, the uh, Chrysler um, uh, put on a essentially kind of a large station wagon that 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 they uh, built during the days when they were owned by uh, Daimler, um, and um, which didn't do very well. But they brought that name back and they've put it on this new minivan, which they're trying to position as something like uh, a crossover and something like a minivan. They're trying to hit sort of a rifle shot. Um, it's still got sliding doors. That's what counts. Honda Civic wins car of the year. Volvo XC90 gets truck of the year. You cover this industry a lot more closely than I do. I don't know about you. The the fact that Volvo is winning truck of the year was a little bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like the Oscars where, you know, these movies that no one ever sees win the win the awards. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I've driven the XC90. It's, it's an awfully nice vehicle, and it really does uh, seem that Volvo... Um, is getting back on track, um, but you're right. I mean, it's a, it's still a small brand in this country, but um, you know, Volvo is trying to do something pretty interesting with that vehicle. They're tr- they're trying to make it uh, more tech, uh, more efficient, uh, more of a technology uh, showcase, and and so we'll see. We'll see if if people pick up on on the brand uh, and and recognize that. Um, that they have something new to say. Uh, that segment is awfully competitive, the sort of largish luxury uh, sport utility vehicle. So they have some work to do. Uh, the German companies are definitely after some of this, a lot of the same customers that they're after. You mentioned the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last week. And in advance of that, one of the reports was that Ford Motor and Google were going to uh, announce a partnership, a joint venture on self-driving cars we haven't heard anything since. Um, what, what is the latest with this dance between Ford Motor and Google? 
Well, first of all, uh, I mean, uh, the, you're right. It was the dog that did not bark. And, uh, and, I, I, and I, I won't take up a lot of time, but I will say I've, I've been to a couple of no-show rodeos like this uh, in, with involving Google and established uh, automotive companies in the past. I mean, I remember uh, Continental was left, uh, left kind of uh, uh, tapping their toes at a press conference in Frankfurt one year after a whole bunch of rumors that they were going to have some big alliance with Google. Now, what, here's what did happen. What did happen was that uh, John Krafcik, who is the auto industry veteran Google has hired to run their self-driving car project uh, just a few months ago, came to Detroit, spoke at the Automotive News World Congress, which is adjacent to the opening of the Detroit show, and essentially said he looked out at a room full of five or 600 automotive industry executives and said, I want to partner with you. I, I, I'm looking for partners. I, I want to partner with all of you. Um, he didn't say that he had any partners, and Ford has not uh, has not said either that they aren't working with Google or talking to Google, or that they are. It, it appears that what's going on is that these companies are are trying to figure out how can we work together and still compete if that's what it comes to, because Google certainly is either or or can be both a collaborator with the big auto companies or a threat, and and maybe not or and a threat. Um, clearly, Google wants its Android system in the dashboard of your car, connecting your smartphone, your Android smartphone, to the dashboard and the screens and the and the infotainment system of your car. There's an area of collaboration, um, but whether or not the car companies really want Google to basically take over the brains of a car of a self-driving car that they might build, um, that's not at all clear. They're very very wary of that because they saw what happened to um, the telephone handset makers. They became essentially marginalized in the value chain, and uh, they don't want to do that. Last year, we saw record sales for the auto industry, and the falling price of gas certainly helped with that. When you talk to people uh, in Detroit, how much credit is given to the price of gas being low, and to what extent is there concern that when gas prices rise again, it may have a negative impact on sales? There's a lot of concern about that, although you don't you, you don't necessarily hear it from indus from automaker executives, but you hear it from just about everybody else. Uh, Mike Jackson, who's the head of Auto Nation, which is the largest uh, dealership chain in the United States, uh, again came here to that same conference, the Auto News Conference, and and essentially said to uh, the to the industry, look, you know, we're hitting a plateau in sales. It's good. It's a good. It's a good plateau. It's a high plateau, but it's a plateau. And um, it's time for us to pay more attention to inventories and not, not overload on cars. Be very, be very careful about um, having too many vehicles in the dealer lots uh, and suddenly have sales slow, even, slow down to a really significant degree and, and, and leave us kind of holding the bag. Um, you're right. I mean, volatility of gas prices is a big problem for the automakers right now. It's kind of a good problem to have because uh, the large, expensive vehicles are going off a lot uh, very briskly. But the small cars that they spent a lot of money developing over the last five years when gas was expensive are now just kind of sitting there. And the electric cars that they need to sell in California and several other states to meet, with reg- to meet regulatory requirements, they aren't selling. And those are problems. And uh, I think... Honestly, I think if you, um, you know, pour truth serum into the drinks of uh, the CEOs of big car companies, they would tell you, you know what, we need a we need a gas tax that keeps gasoline, you know, pretty, you know, three three dollars and above, um, so that we can sell these uh, efficient cars that uh, California and other government agencies want us to sell. 
You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Joe White, transportation editor for Thomson Reuters. One of the big stories of 2015 in the business world, not just the auto industry, but in the business world, was the Volkswagen emissions scandal. And this week, French authorities raided the offices of automaker Renault as part of its investigation into Renault's emissions. As of this taping, right now, there's no evidence of cheating. But Joe, if this happens to another automaker, aren't the knives going to come out? Isn't every regulatory agency going to start knocking on the door of every automaker, regardless of suspicion? Yes, is the short answer. A uh, slightly longer answer is that uh, this is this is kind of the nightmare for the auto industry, um, and it was always kind of there, pretty much from day one of the Volkswagen scandal. That that regulators um, would 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 say, wait a minute, if these guys are are cheating, um, is anybody else cheating? Uh, are we the regulators doing enough to police the industry? And make sure that everybody's playing by the rules. And so, yeah, the, the situation with Renault um, is, is pretty dramatic. I mean, the stock took a, just a beating today. And uh, even though it's not at all clear whether Renault has done something wrong, I think that um, it's pretty it's pretty clear that in Europe, and I suspect in the United States, uh, not a suspect, I know in the United States because the EPA has said so, uh, that regulatory scrutiny of the car makers' compliance with emissions is going up. That almost certainly means that costs are going up. And whether any of these, even if none of these other companies are found to have done something wrong or illegal, all of them face the prospect of uh, much tougher, uh, much tougher compliance uh, uh, regimes, likely higher compliance costs, more testing, and all of that. And and in Europe, it's pretty clear that the tolerance that European regulators have had for pretty wide vari- variations of actual emissions or between actual emissions and test emissions, that tolerance is, uh, is going away pretty quick. And it's, it's going to be much tougher in Europe um, for companies to, uh, to get by without actually doing what is required to keep emissions within the legal limits. If regulators are wary about emissions, they have to be even more so about the prospect of self-driving cars on the road. When you talk to people in the industry, is there a best guess as to when you factor in technology advances, when you factor in the pace of regulatory approval, is there a best guess as to when self-driving cars could be mainstream? Well, there, there are a lot of best guesses, and um, and and this is a, this is a hot topic. In fact, even a, you know you know uh, here in Detroit uh, as we speak. Uh, the Secretary of Transportation is about to announce that the federal government is going to is going to try to put some more allow some more flexibility on some of the vehicle safety rules to allow gr- wider and more expansive testing of autonomous vehicles on the road. Um, so, so to answer your question, the consen- the consensus appears to be that a limited amount, a limited hands-free driving, and I'm using that I'm using that term kind of deliberately because there's a lot of different definitions of autonomous driving that are floating around and. I'm a simple guy, and so here's what I want to know. Can I take my hands off the wheel? And uh, over the next couple of years, several companies, GM, Audi, uh, Mercedes, uh, certainly Tesla is already doing it, um, will allow you to take your hands off the wheel under, under limited circumstances in a traffic jam, on a, you know, on, a, on a highway on a traffic jam, so the car can kind of follow the car in front of it and, and stop and go. Um, in highway driving, where the car can see lane markers and keep itself positioned between those lane markers and operate safely. 
when will we get to the point where, I and mean, I think maybe a lot of your listeners are familiar with the video that Google shot a, uh, a couple years ago of, a, of an autonomous car taking a, a, a blind man out for a sandwich at McDonald's, um, a, a really endearing and, and, and kind of a really smart and, and, and a touching way to kind of to say what's the goal here. That scenario, uh, a car driving someone who's incapable of operating the vehicle uh, safely himself or herself, uh, from point A to point B in a city, that's probably farther away than a lot of the kind of optimists believe because the complexity of doing that, doing it safely, and doing it in a way that will um, pass muster with regulators, and this is really important, litigators, lawyers, um, automakers are very concerned about getting sued, right? The first one of these cars that hits somebody or goes off the road accidentally, there's going to be a giant lawsuit, enormous nervousness about that. It could be longer than a lot of people think before a fully autonomous uh, car is something that you see every day. Two more questions, and then I'll let you go. Apple is doing their best to hide their electric car project. But, <laughs> That's uh, for sure. Elon <laughs> uh, Musk uh, recently made the comment, it's pretty hard to hide something when you hire a thousand engineers mm-hmm. to work on it. What is the sense in Detroit of Apple these days? Is there... Uh, how are traditional automakers looking at Apple? Is it something that they're concerned about right now, or do they think uh, this is uh, we we got plenty of competitors mm-hmm. right now in 2016? Well, actually, both of those things are true. I mean, they do have a lot of competitors in 2016. Uh, it's just just their own within their own ranks. Uh, there's plenty to there's plenty to work on. Um, the auto companies, I believe, are concerned about Apple, which explains. Some of, or in part, explains all the activity this just this this month and over the past couple of years by the by many of the big car companies to demonstrate to their investors and to their you know and to potential customers that they're that they're in the game when it comes to electric vehicles, in the game when it comes to autonomous technology, in the game when it comes to um, connectivity and 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 connect keeping you connected on the road to the mobile internet. Um, they want to basically establish or reestablish barriers to entry uh, so that companies like Apple uh, can't come in and, and eat their lunch. I mean, the, the concern is that Apple will create a, a, a vehicle that, that is branded as an, you know, that you think of as an Apple product, and where's, who needs Ford, who needs Chevrolet? So I do think that Apple probably um, – will have will find the auto business more complex than some of its fans um, would think um, it's a highly regulated industry a cell phone is not a car uh, even an electric car is a far more complex gadget than anything that Apple produces today um, so quite where Apple will shake out in this who knows but you know Elon Musk got to know he, he he lives and works in the same community and uh, Apple has uh, tried to hire away a number of his people and uh, they could be a formidable competitor because, honestly, if Apple really wanted to be in the car business, they could take out uh, a checkbook, uh, just about any one of them that they might have, and uh, write a check and buy Fiat Chrysler. They could do it today. Was there any feature on any vehicle that you've seen so far at this year's Detroit Auto Show that made you think, you know what, the next vehicle I buy, I want that thing to be in it? <laughs> You know, that's a really good question and I and I and I and I honestly can't say that I saw anything that just wowed me like that. And I and and there was not a real knockout uh product uh, at the Detroit show. There were some very 
very nice products. The new Lexus uh, Luxury Coupe is a beautiful looking automobile. I'll say so. So I'll say I'll give a little shout out though to Honda. Um, Honda relaunched the Ridgeline pickup, and again, some of your listeners may uh, have been lucky enough to see one of these things. It's kind of like seeing a pterodactyl. They didn't sell very many of them, um, but they've re- redesigned this this truck. But if I wanted a pickup truck or needed a pickup truck, I would love to have a Honda Ridgeline. Why? Because in the back, in the load bed, they've engineered a deep, cooler-sized well. Oh, with a with a drain in the bottom. So this thing is when you, your next tailgating uh, your next tailgating party, you've got a built-in uh, beer tub uh, with a drain in the bottom. You can fill it up with ice and you know put the beverage of your choice in there. And uh, I just thought, well, that's pretty fun. That's a that's a cool feature. It's not very high tech. It's just kind of an ingenious uh, an ingenious uh, thing put in to kind of acknowledge that yeah, you know what, a lot of people use a pickup truck uh, as the basis for a party. You want to know what's going on in the automotive industry, follow Joe White on Twitter, read his stuff online. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Sure, anytime. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Just a couple of minutes to get to the stocks on our radar this week. Ron Gross, what do you got? Well, this is relatively easy in light of the market turmoil that we find ourselves in. So I recommend picking your favorite well-run company and either starting a position or adding to it. And I'm going to go with the big daddy of them all and say Berkshire Hathaway, BRKB, $125 a share, down 7% this year, down 17% over the last year. Shares are now trading at 1.3 times book value. Warren Buffett himself says Berkshire would be buying back stock at 1.2 times, so we're approaching that that all-important measure. I think it's a great time to buy Berkshire. Jason Moser? Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway crossed my radar, Ron. Ah, I thought you'd like nice, that. Nice. Um, I'm going to go with one I've, I've tapped here before. It's called XPO Logistics. The ticker is XPO. Uh, but they are in transportation logistics, primarily truck uh, trucking and freight brokerage. Sounds sexy. Um, it is. The, it's <laughs> extremely sexy world of, tr- of trucking and, and, uh, and logistics. But uh, the smart leadership in Bradley Jacobs, who has uh, been around for a long time, and made a number of acquisitions, not only in this industry, but the energy industry as well. Very big market opportunity, and, and the price has taken a bit of a hit lately. So it's uh, it's one that's back on my radar to take a look into. Maddie, I know Jason's going to love this. I, I like Twitter uh, ticker hey. TWTR. It is just down all time highs now, or sorry, all time lows yeah. now. And I, I would just say, if you look at digital advertising, digital advertising for the first time is going to exceed TV advertising this year. A lot of that is going to Facebook, Alphabet, but a lot of it's also going to go. To Twitter, and I just think they're they're really going to benefit. I see it everywhere. It's huge in the media. So um, under underrated. Let's bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass. Steve, we got about thirty seconds. Berkshire Hathaway, XPO Logistics, Twitter. Any of those you want to put on your watch list? Berkshire sounds pretty enticing right now. That sounds a good argument. Ron. <laughs> You're not already a shareholder. Of not Berkshire. yet. 
Uh, this is perfect time. All right, Ryan Gross, Jason Moser, Mount Arthur Singer. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Once again, supernovaradio.fool.com. Check it out for more information on our Supernova service. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl, our engineer, Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Yeah.